feeling very grateful this morning. I feel like there's a lot of people I want to thank and need to thank. I want to thank um, all the veterans on this Memorial Day weekend. I want to thank all the kiddos for being in here. I want to thank all of you for being here, all the guests for being here. Um, but I do want to take this opportunity. This is our family worship day. It's the fifth Sunday, so there's no FBN kids. They're all in here with us. Um, and I want to recognize Matt and Sarah Buell, our uh, ministry directors down there, because they're always down there, right? And we don't ever get to t- express our appreciation for them. And so for their uh, week in, week out, scheduling, formatting, shaping that ministry, taking care of the kiddos, can we all just thank them this morning since they're actually up here with us? <clears throat> All right, if you have a, a Bible, um, it's, it's going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. If not, there's a black one in the seat backs in front of you, on page 1052. Before I launch out in that, I want to I mention something now uh, so I don't have to remember to mention at the end. Um, several congregation members of FBN were contacted yesterday uh, by scammers looking to uh, get you to buy gift cards um, and contacting the authorities. This has been happening to several churches around town. Um, and so I, I need to let you know out, up front, nobody from FBN will ever contact you asking you to get a gift card and send them the digits on the back immediately. Um, we, have, we have all kinds of ministry processes in place that will never need to do that. And so immediately you can know in the future that is not us. Um, but we did have one family who lost $400 to them yesterday. Um, and, and we're upset about that, rightfully so. Um, and so what we kind of talked about with the treasury team this morning and agreed to do there's a white box on the back of, on the front of the sound booth, right back middle. Um, rather than that family, just out of the goodness of their heart, losing that entire chunk, uh, if we could all sort of feel that together this morning, if you have some extra cash on you, don't mind partying with, throw it in that white box and we'll get it to them this morning um, so that they don't have to be out $400 just because they were doing something they thought their church was asking them to do. Um, we'd appreciate that. And, uh, and, and again, uh, just moving forward, nobody from this church will ever ask you uh, to do something like that. So just so we're clear, all right? Uh, let's pray and get started in First Timothy chapter 3. Father, we are thankful uh, for the opportunity to be here, and we're thankful for your uh, grace and your mercy to us at all times. We're thankful for uh, the chance that we have now uh, to open your word to look into it. I'm, I'm grateful for how you already inhabited the praise of your people. I'm thankful for the worship team and how they led us this morning. Uh, but God, now as we turn our attention to uh, this continued section in, in, in 1 Timothy 3 that, that lifts up these qualifications for church leaders, Lord, would you speak to each and every one of us where we are now? Uh, would you use this passage to, to speak uh, to, our, to our greatest need this morning, uh, which is whatever you're trying to do in our life? And may we be open and attentive to it. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, there's a a birthday party for an old man turning 100 years old, and apparently it was a slow news day because the editor of a local newspaper sent a reporter out to to cover the party, and he was driving out thinking, how in the world am I going to write a story about just a birthday party? And so he sat down to interview the man, and he said, you're turning 100 years old today, what are you most proud of? And the guy thought about it for a little bit, and he he said, you know what, I'm most proud of that I don't have a single enemy on the entire planet. And the reporter was like, there's my story, right? This, this nice puff piece about unity and harmony. And, and, and he's like, okay, so how did you do that? How did you get to where you have no enemies in the entire planet? And the old man said, it's really easy. I outlived them all. I win, right? <laughs> See, nobody likes having an adversary. Nobody, I, don't, I don't think anybody wants an enemy. I would argue there are some people who are a little too comfortable with it, right? But nobody wants it. 
It's the idea that, that someone opposes us, that someone is actively rooting against us, that someone is seeking to bring us harm. This is an unsettling idea. And we're going through this, this letter of 1 Timothy, and, and where Paul is writing to Timothy, this young man, his, his young protege in the faith, that he's left behind the city of Ephesus to bring really stability and correction to a church that was in chaos. And then we're going through the section in chapter 3 where Paul is covering uh, the qualifications for elders and pastors and overseers, whatever title you want to give it in the church. And this is our third Sunday going to this list because it's a long list. And the approach that we've taken the first two weeks is this, that if you are an elder or if you desire to be an elder, this list is a requirement. But all of us, whether you're an elder or not or desire to be an elder or not, all of us should strive for these things because really what it is a list of is Christian maturity. And I like that mindset. I like, I like approaching it that way. But today I want to approach this from a slightly different angle because I think Paul approaches these last three verses in the section from a slightly different angle. But we can all agree that to this point, right, the standards and qualifications are really high. It's a high bar that God is setting for leadership in the church. And we've already talked about why. Number one, God cares deeply about the church. There's not a single person here on the planet that cares more about the church than God does. Right, secondly, he knows that, that leaders just have uh, the potency to, to influence more people than just themselves. And so you need to have the men of right character in those roles. And thirdly, it's God's glory, it's God's reputation that's ultimately on the line. And so he's going to set this really high standard. But today we're going to look at three more things in this section, right? And the language that's going to be used is that the, an elder, an overseer of the church, must do these things. These are necessities. And we're going to see another reason why all this matters, and that's this, that all of us who are in Jesus Christ have an enemy. We all have an enemy, and our enemy wants to bring people down as many as he can. And so consistently in his aim and in his target will be churches and church leaders to inflict maximum destruction. And the writers of Scripture had a full understanding of this. Right? And Jesus talked about this often too. And so we're going to look at that reality this morning and, 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 and what we're to do in light of it as well. And so I'm going to invite Jeff McIntosh up to read today's passage. He's going to read for us 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. And if you're physically capable, would you please stand with Jeff for the reading of God's word this morning? Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, church. Starting in verse 4, he must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert, or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. Thank you, Jeff. You guys have a seat. Keep your Bibles open right there to 1 Timothy 3, 4 through 7. Those are the verses that we're going to be unpacking today. Any other we reference, we'll put on the screens for you. But elders, pastors, overseers, whatever title you want to give it, right? They're, they're being called to spiritual leadership in this passage. And so in that, there's three characteristics of spiritual leadership that I want to pull out from 1 Timothy 3 today. And the first is this, that spiritual leadership is proven first in the home. Okay, look at verse 4 again. Uh, Paul writes, he, that means an elder, must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. Verse 5, if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? All right, so in verse 4, you've got the mandate that he must, an elder must manage his household well, he must have his children under control, and he must do this with dignity and self-control and decency. And then verse 5 is the rhetorical question. If he cannot do this in his home, 
then how could he ever lead God's church? And this qualification, right, verses 4 and 5, out of the entire list that we find in verses 1 through 7, has led to the widest variety of interpretations in the church and the most amount of debate. And the reason why is because, honestly, the possibilities here are expansive. And if you don't believe me, just start asking questions. And you realize every question you ask will lead to another question, right? Does this mean that adult children must live in obedience to the Lord as well as young children? Does this mean that an elder must be married and have kids and so a single guy can't be an elder? Does this this in verse 2 mean that an elder must have never been divorced before? And what does it mean if the divorce happened before he was a follower of Jesus? And does this mean if a teenager makes a foolish decision, as many teens do, that his father is immediately disqualified and on and on and on and on and on? And a lot of people want to ask those questions. A lot of people want to roll up their sleeves and dig into those questions. I think those questions aren't the best way to approach this passage. Because if that was the point of this qualification, the Bible would have went ahead and addressed it all and gotten very specific for us. Because anybody who's read the Bible can tell you God, when he wants to address very specific things, gets very, very specific in his word. Now, a lot of churches and Christians who disagree with me on that, they want to get down in the weeds, right? They, want, they demand specific answers. They want black and white answers to all this. They draw lines and are immovable, and I can respect that. Because there are times in our interpretation and application of God's word that we need to draw lines. I don't make it a practice to criticize positions that people take directly from the word, even if I see it slightly different, because I have to admit in those conversations, I'm quite possibly the one who's seeing it wrong. But I'm going to argue this morning to you But I think the heart of this passage is what comes through in verse 4 and 5. That the qualifications being lifted up here is one of shepherding and faithfulness. The first thing the Bible mentions, right, is is that there's a level of competence required here. If somebody literally can't get anybody in his life to follow him, right, somebody can't get anybody in his life to to respect his authority or line up under his guidelines, he he just lacks the competency to lead and influence. The standard here isn't perfect children because they don't exist. But the standard is, do, do his children have a measure of respect, admiration, and deference to their father? Because if his own family couldn't care less about what he's saying, how could he ever competently lead the church? Secondly, there's a, there's a faithfulness required here. Listen, I don't believe that I'm going to be held responsible for the sins of this congregation. At least I really hope not, knowing all you messy people, right? But listen, I believe with every fiber of my being that I'll be held responsible for whether or not I was faithful to what God has called me to do. Whether or not I was faithful to proclaim his word in entirety. Whether or not I was faithful to point you all to Jesus. Whether or not I was faithful to herald and protect the gospel. What you do with all that is between you and the Lord. And that's not as clear cut, it's not as clear cut with with young children, but I think with adult children it is. I don't think God will hold parents responsible for what their adult sinful children do once they're outside the home. What he will do is hold them to account as to whether they were faithful to what he called them to. Did they point their children to Jesus? Did they pray with him? Did they have those spiritual conversations with him? Did they encourage them to follow Christ? Did they model for them what living for Jesus looks like? Or did they punt that to the youth pastor and Sunday school teacher? Did they force their kids to go to school every single day and tell them, if you sign up for a sport, you've got to see your commitments through, but then say, I don't want to force my kids to go to church because they need to make their own decisions. See, was there, was there a consistent effort given to the highest calling in their life as a father? Or did apathy and permissiveness and a lack of tenderness to the things of Christ mark their parenting? The single most terrifying thing about parenting 
is that you can be faithful and you can do your best and your children still might reject every single thing you point them to. It is a horrifying and real possibility. But faithfulness to your calling as a parent is not on them, it's on you. And the question is asked here, how can someone be faithful to shepherd God's church if he wasn't faithful to attempt to shepherd his house? Thirdly, there's an attitude required here. Verse 4 reads, he must have his children under control with all dignity. Now, often when people read that, mess, that sentence, they assume that with all dignity is still referring to the children. But it's not. I don't think so. I think it's referring to the method of shepherding. That there are ways, I hope you know this, there are ways to exert influence, there are ways to get people to fall in line and obey, there are ways to modify behavior and bring results that are far from the heart of God. Right? Bullying, demanding, dominating, aggressive, blunt shepherding has no place in the Christian home and no place in the Christian church. And this is consistent with what the scriptures lay out for us. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us this, fathers, don't stir up anger in your children. But bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. It's a way to do this without being a dominating bully. Listen to the similar calling on church leaders. First Peter chapter 5, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseen out of compulsion but willingly, as God would have you. Not out of greed for money but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. There's a way to lead there's a way to shepherd, there's a way to steer, and there's a way to guide that does not lead to bitterness and detachment and wounds and long-term damage to the relationship. There's a way that to shepherd that exemplifies how the great shepherd leads us, and that is what we're called to in the home and in the church. I think what is being demanded here in verse 4 and 5 is faithfulness, not, not, not a liberty to, to play the results and go back and disqualify someone. Secondly, we find that spiritual leadership's influence is one over time. Look at verse six. He must not be a new convert or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Do you ever wonder why pretty much every week it seems like I'm talking about our discipleship pathway and growth track for you? Well, every week there's this constant press for you to be developed, for you to grow in your faith. It's because this is the design of God for you and this is the desire of God for you. We are to grow. We are to, to develop. We are to deepen in our faith and our walk with Jesus. It's why church overseers should not be new converts. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase that with age comes wisdom, but you need to know that is not what this verse is saying. I've met plenty of older folks who prove that to be not true, right? What this is saying is this, that God sees and recognizes and respects the process of sanctification, that new believers cannot be expected to handle everything someone who has followed the Lord for a long time can. Because discipleship is a journey. Discipleship takes time. And to lead people to pursue Jesus more deeply, there needs to be a reservoir of depth in your life first. It's a good thing. It's a noble thing, according to verse 1, for a new believer to desire eldership one day. Right? It's, a, it's, a, it's a good thing for them to want that. It's not a good thing for us to make them one without properly developing them. It's a good thing for you to desire deeper levels of ministry leadership around here. That's a good desire. It would not be a good thing for us to give it to you if you haven't progressed in your faith to that point yet. And not only this isn't just for the church, this is for your protection as well, which we'll see here in a few minutes. Thirdly, spiritual leadership represents the church in Jesus well. Look at verse 7. It says, furthermore, he must, again, there's the word must, 
He must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. Man, it does no good. No good at all for an elder or pastor overseer to be respected among the church and then have a terrible reputation in the community. Why? Because it goes back to the heart of what the church has been called to. The very mission of the church of Jesus is to take the gospel to those who don't know it yet and don't have it yet. And so if a pastor or elder has a bad reputation among non-believers, it negatively affects the church's ability to reach those people. It also harms the reputation of the Jesus that we are proclaiming. And I don't really know what else to say about that to add to that because that feels like a no-brainer. If somebody's not paying bills, if somebody's getting arrested, if they're hated by all their neighbors, they're leaving a wake of destruction behind them, this disqualifies them from holding public positions of authority in the church. That should just be simple. Now, for all three of these, if you notice in the CSB, the word must is used. The Greek word that is used there is, is pronounced die, which literally means a necessity, okay? These are all necessities for the role. And the question that I want to answer this morning is why? Why are these three things necessities? The, the list in verse 2 and 3 were necessities, but they were just listed and moved on. But for each of these three, we get a further explanation from Paul as to why they're necessities. And the theme throughout is this, that the church has an enemy. And he will use whatever he can to harm her. First point, family issues can quickly derail spiritual influence. There are few things that control a man's heart. There are few things that can swing his emotion. There are few things that influence his passion and consume his thoughts more than his family. And so if the family comes down, not far after it can come effectiveness. And spiritual leadership is a lifestyle of sacrifice, cost, and humility, and it's not felt by the elder and overseer alone. It is felt by his family. And it's not easy. And it becomes increasingly difficult if your spouse is unfulfilled or bitter towards you in the church. It becomes impossible if you feel you're constantly under the pressure, stress, and worry over what your children might do next. An overseer's wife and kids need his care, need his love, need his attention and sacrifice. That is right, that is good, that is part of God's design. But when it gets to the point where they cannot even do their job, then ministry is effective. One of the single most effective ways that churches can care for their elders and overseers is to actively protect, support, and pray for their family. Not demanding perfection out of them, not holding them to unreasonable standards you wouldn't hold anybody else, but loving and praying for and checking in on them. Because throughout history, if the enemy can't get to the pastor or elder, he'll aim for those closest to them. And it is the privilege of each local congregation to fight for them, to protect them, so that he isn't left to do it on his own. Secondly, the enemy tries to distort the purpose of leadership. In Warren Wearsby's commentary in this passage, he writes, Satan enjoys seeing a young leader succeed and then get prideful because that is the point where he can tear down everything that's been built up. We watch this in the Gospels as Jesus has to work his own disciples through this journey, through this process. Because spiritual leadership has different values than worldly leadership. In Mark 10, the disciples are actually arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Or who's going to sit at Jesus' right and left hand, his kingdom and all this stuff. And he has to sit them down again. And he says this to them. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them, but not, it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and gave his life as a ransom for many. Again, the warning here in verse 6 is not against age, it's against spiritual age. A 30-year-old can have decades of following Christ, and a 6-year-old could have become a Christian last week. The wisdom that's laid before us is this. If you are considering someone for church leadership, number one, do they showcase the characteristics that we find here in 1 Timothy 3? And number two, have they showcased them for at least a decent amount of time? Because anytime you give humans authority, the enemy will definitely try and tempt you that you're important now. You begin to see your role as important and being seen and being heard and being an influencer rather than being a servant, rather than being in submission. Satan knows that if he can lead someone away from humility, he can lead them away from effectiveness. Thirdly, the enemy delights in taking leaders down. He delights in it. This is why the reputation outside the church matters. It's why faithfulness matters, because if Satan can take out a leader, then he can disenfranchise and cause doubt and hurt a lot more people than just that overseer. This is why whenever one of you, any one of you, pursues the Lord and pursues serving him more deeply, you need to be ready for the response because it's coming. Satan will try to distract you. He'll try to tempt you. He'll try to harm you. He'll try to stress you out. Anything to get you to bail on your pursuit, anything to get you to stumble, anything to get you to fail. Because if by causing you to stumble, he can damage the faith or pursuit of Jesus of others, that is a win-win for him every single time. Now, the reality of our enemy heightens the importance of these commands. It's why we see the word must in all three. The spiritual leadership must be proven in the home. Its influence must be won over time, and it must have a good name and reputation. But again, I don't think that these passages are just for overseers only. I think there are real action steps that all of us who are in Christ can take from this. And so what are those? Number one is simply this. Pray for your spiritual leaders and their families. You need to know the very nature of their role puts a target on their back. In the book, Preventing Ministry Failure, the authors Michael Todd Wilson and Brad Hoffman are sharing their experience from years of dealing with spiritual leaders after their great breakdown. In the opening chapter, they cite a survey that was taken of America's pastors about 15 years ago. And in this survey, these were the results, 90% of pastors feel inadequately trained to cope with ministry demands. 80% believe that pastoral ministry negatively affects their families. 45% have experienced depression or burnout to the extent they needed to take an extended leave of absence. 40% have a serious conflict with a church member at least once a month. And 70% do not have someone they consider a close friend. All experts say that and given the last year in the pandemic, all those numbers have even gone up. Is there any doubt that there's an enemy actively working against them? Is there any wonder that some of them flame out, sometimes in awful ways? I'm convinced that the ones who make it are the ones who have community, the ones who have support, and have people who are actively praying for them and their family. And God has set up FBN for what I believe are some pretty big things in the near future. You're gonna hear a lot about them next week. And while everything we're gonna announce is overwhelmingly positive, it's also true that when we start putting dents in the kingdom of darkness, we will land squarely on its radar. And it's always awkward for me to ask for anything of myself, but I will freely and boldly ask on behalf of my family and our staff and our elders and their families, we covet, we are appreciative of, and we desperately need your prayers. This is a way that you can lift up your overseers around here. Secondly, you need to recognize the fight in your life. 1 Peter 5 says this, 
Be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone that he can devour. Man, you, you have been created. You have been designed. You have been redeemed. You have been saved. You have been called to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And as you pursue him, as you go deeper in your faith with him, there will always be a response. And he will always use the same two tools, deceit and distraction. You don't need to fear him. Because the Holy Spirit that's in you is so much greater than he is. But the call of scripture is consistently over and over again to wake up. To be alert, to be ready, to be aware, to be serious and sober-minded about this reality. You need to recognize the fight and engage in it. There will constantly be forces in your life that will play on your sinful nature with the intentions of pulling you away from that which ultimately matters. And when you're newer in Christ, he's going to use your sinful desires at first to tempt you just to do straight sinful things. But as you grow and progress out of those, he will start to use things that aren't inherently bad, but use them to distract you to keep you from the things that are the best. And so if you're going to follow Jesus, you must stay aware of the enemy. You must stay aware of his moves and his tactics and his presence. We must engage in the battle for our souls. But thirdly, in doing so, we can never fight from a position of defeat. Jesus Christ defeated sin. He defeated the power of sin. He defeated the penalty of sin. He defeated the kingdom of darkness on the cross. All of us come into this world as sinners. All of us come into this world belonging to our enemy. And we have no hope of being reconciled to the God who made us outside of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus came and he took on human form and he lived the sinless life that we have not and could not live, and when he died on the cross to pay the price, not just for our sins, but in the sins of any who believe in him, but to defeat the kingdom of darkness forever, then he rose from the grave to offer us a life of eternity with him. This, uh, the ultimate victory has already been declared. But the battle is actually over, right? Even though it's ongoing. Satan's future, his eternal ruin is secure. It's finished, it's done. He loses, period. He loses dramatically, he loses wildly, and he loses permanently. But he's also aware of this. And so his strategy is simply this. I'm gonna take as many down with me as I can. But he who is within you, Christian, is greater than he who is in the world. And you need not fear him to the point of paralysis. You need not tremble before him. You need not to succumb to him because you are Jesus's and Jesus is yours. Your fate has been sealed too. You will spend all eternity in the victory that Jesus brought you. And there will be a day in which we can rest and enjoy in full what Christ has provided for us. There will be a day in when this eternal struggle, this battle in our souls, this tension between these two kingdoms uh, will be done. That we won't, we won't keep doing what we don't want to do and struggle to do what we do want to do. All that will be gone and all will be thanks to Jesus because all who are in him are victorious. But until that day, we're called to engage in the fight. Until that day, it's not enough for us to simply maintain our faith. It's not enough for us to try to build authentic community with the people who are already here and never think about the people who aren't. We have been called as the people of God, as the church of Jesus Christ, to go knock down the gates of hell and take ground for our king. And we do this by fighting from a position of strength and victory. We do this by fighting with the weapons that he gives us. We do this by living gospel-centered lives, by engaging in spiritual warfare for our souls and our children, for our leaders through the privilege of prayer. We do this by living lives of multiplication, all for the glory of King Jesus. And at FBN, we strive to be the church that God calls us to be. Not that we've arrived, but that we press on towards what God lays before us. And so may our overseers be humble 
May they be faithful. May they represent Christ well and do it over an extended season of time. May the people of FBN lift up those overseers and their families in prayer. May we recognize the fight for our own soul and always seek to take ground for the kingdom of God in the most important battle of our lives. Our enemy is active. He is alive. He is working. He is ultimately defeated. So let's fight from the position of strength and take the ground for the kingdom that he's laid before us. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for the awesome tension that your word strikes, the balance that it, that it keeps all the time of calling us to be fully aware of the enemy, to be fully aware of his means and his tactics and his ways, to be fully aware of, of what he's going to do to try to bring us down, but never one time are we called to fear him. Never one time are we called to take a defeatist attitude with him. Never one time are we told that we cannot resist him. In fact, we're told if we resist him, he will flee. So God, I pray that as a church, we will be constantly aware of the kingdom of darkness. We will be aware of its ways. We're aware of its tactics, but that we will never be paralyzed by fear of it. Lord, instead, we would rightly recognize what you're calling us to do through prayer and through your word, that we rightly recognize what you've laid before us and pursue that because Jesus himself said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. So Lord, use us to take ground for your kingdom. Use us to knock down some gates. Use us as a portal of your grace and mercy to the people that we interact with. We ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Before these guys lead us in, a, in one last song, we get a couple minutes just for you to spend uh, with just the Lord, just for you to pray with him, wrestle with him. Uh, there's some guidance on the screens if you need it, but really this is just your time uh, to respond to what he may be doing in your lives this morning. Mm-hmm.